0: Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hanson, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. It's a book all about women and Jesus, but not just for women. It's a book for all of us about Jesus as we see him from the perspective of his female followers. In Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, How the First Female Disciples Help Us Know and Love the Lord, published by the Gospel Coalition, Rebecca McLaughlin explores the life-changing accounts of women who met the Lord. By entering the stories of the named and unnamed women in the Gospels, this book gives readers a unique lens to see Jesus as these women did and marvel at how he loved them in return. Now, if you're like me, you might be surprised by just how much we can learn. I mean, I I knew all of these stories, of course, by reading them over the years, but I'd never seen them together this way. And I didn't sufficiently appreciate either the diversity of the stories or their first century oddities. The only reason I think they don't stand out more to us today is because we already live in a world that's been revolutionized by Jesus' treatment of women. We could still travel to many places, especially in the Middle East, that more closely resemble the pre-Christ world and how women are treated and valued compared to men. Many of you will be familiar with Rebecca's work through such books as The Secular Creed, Confronting Christianity, and... Another new book, Confronting Jesus, Nine Encounters with the Hero of the Gospels, which is published by Crossway and TGC. And Rebecca joins me now on Gospel Bound to discuss the Gnostic Gospels, feminism, and more. Rebecca, thanks for joining me.
1: Hey, Colin. I thought we were going to talk about the real Gospels, though, not the Gnostic ones.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to talk about the Gnostic Gospels in light of why we prefer the real Uh, Gospels. Okay, Uh, okay. (laughs) All right, so let's just start. Big question here. What was the single most striking thing you learned about Jesus through the eyes of women?
1: Oh, my goodness. It, it fe- I feel really dumb confessing this. But early in the process of writing this book, I found myself writing the sentence, a sentence claiming that Jesus had female disciples <laughs> in the fullest sense. Yeah. And I felt almost edgy saying that. I I I always knew that the twelve apostles weren't the only disciples Jesus had, but actually saying out loud Jesus had female disciples in the absolute fullest sense, it, albeit not within the the twelve who were playing a, you know a very specific role. Um, I actually texted my best friend. I was like, am I on the edge saying this? And am I on the edge saying that there were also female prophets uh, that we see in the gospels? I- I'm not. It's just what the text says. And so I think it was fun for me because um, I spent quite a bit of time in various um, books and just in my own sort of life, looking at the encounters of Jesus with multiple women. I think it was piecing. down together those encounters just like you were describing Colin and in particular looking at Luke's gospel which fascinates me to the extent that I call my son Luke who Luke Luke names um, women as Jesus's disciples on purpose to name women among Jesus's disciples (laughs) so it it couldn't be clearer from Luke's gospel that Jesus had female disciples in the fullest sense
0: I was going to ask that question and I think I had some of the same reaction that that you did it seems so obvious and yet i don't know why i hadn't more commonly heard it put that way and then as the book has circulated and as we've published excerpts we've been accused of theological downgrade for saying that but what exactly is the alternative either it seems like either to redefine the definition of disciple or to deny the explicit testimony of scripture i don't really know what the alternative is
1: yeah i think we all know that jesus had female followers in the looser sense, and that he he encountered a lot of women who received him, um, you know, absolutely with faith. I think one of the, the markers of disciples in in the most full and technical sense is that they actually traveled around with Jesus. And we see in the in the Gospels, we see very close followers of Jesus who do not travel around with him. So, for example, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, um, who seem to have stayed in Bethany. Uh, rather than following Jesus ar- around, but are clearly among his closest followers, and and each of them described as somebody who Jesus loves. Um, but seeing, especially in Luke's gospel, Luke naming women uh, among those who travelled around with Jesus as he went on his preaching tours through the villages, through the cities, and seeing that they are named witnesses of Jesus's life. Death, burial, and resurrection. Again, it's a piecing together of things that we might have known before. We're probably all familiar with the fact, or many of us with the fact, that women, named women, were the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. But sort of pulling that back and th- seeing, oh no, there are actually also times when it's named women who are the witnesses of Jesus' life and teachings and, and miracles. Even before we get to his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, where they they come to the fore, um, we see this this pattern throughout the gospels.
0: And while still acknowledging that they are not among the twelve, and not the apostles, and not entrusted with that that writing of the gospels, and yet still valued among the closest people, I I, I guess help me to understand what made Jesus different in how he treated women because I think one of the challenges for us as Christian readers in the 2000s is that it doesn't strike us as all that odd, Mm -hmm. his interactions Mm -hmm. with women, but surely that would not have been the case for those women who experienced this with Jesus directly and all of those first readers of these Gospels.
1: Yeah. It, two of my favorite encounters that Jesus had with women are, um, one, when he is having dinner at a Pharisee's house, which is unusual for Jesus. Usually the Pharisees are complaining about who he's having dinner with. And on this occasion, he's actually <laughs> having dinner with a Pharisee named Simon. And this, this woman of the city who was a sinner walks in. And Luke describes her that way, sort of sets her up. It's this sinful woman of the city. And she comes and starts uh, weeping on jesus' feet and, and wiping them with her hair and pouring on. it's it's like a it's a totally embarrassing situation because not not only is this a woman who is sort of approaching Jesus and touching his body frankly in our culture today it would be pretty weird if a woman came yeah. and like started you know touching your feet and crying on you that people yeah. would ask questions you know, Colin, yeah. who is this woman who is <laughs> pouring out our love upon you in this in this way? Um, but so she's she's not only a woman; she's also a sort of disreputable woman for some reason. It's not totally clear whether she was you know known for sexual sin or if there was another kind of sinful um you know well known uh, sinful practice in her life. but uh, Simon the Pharisee is appalled that Jesus is receiving her as he is, and he concludes, you know if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. He's touching him, and he would want nothing to do with her, of course. And Jesus then goes on to hold this woman up as an example of love to shame Simon and points out all the things he's failed to do that she is is now doing. And I, I love this story because it, it shows again not only Jesus receiving a, a a woman and um you know holding up her up as an example to a man who would have seen himself as um you know impressive among men religiously let alone when we extend it to women but that this is a woman who is specifically o- on the edges and on the fringes and in the kind of disreputable camp and yet jesus holds her up as an example um to to yeah to to shame his his pharisee host so we see there a couple of kind of threads combining um to to show us jesus's love and welcome of this woman um Another story that's extremely striking is his conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well in, in John's gospel. And there again, we see three different threads actually pulled together. One, she's a woman and a respectable rabbi shouldn't really be having a private conversation with a, a woman other than you know his mother. <laughs> that would have been probably fine, but like a, a random woman, not so much. Um, number two, she's a Samaritan and Jew's did not associate with Samaritans. They were raised to hate Samaritans. There was a, you know, massive kind of segregation to where Jews would go to long lengths to circumvent Samaritan territory. Jesus walks right into it, and she's a woman who has had five husbands and is now living with a man who's not her husband. So it's almost like Jesus delights in in cutting through um, not only the kind of male female barriers of his day, but Sort of doubling down on that to say, not only about, am I going to um, welcome and engage with women, but also sinful women, but also sinful foreign women who I'm meant to hate as a Jew. It's the longest recorded conversation he has with anyone in the Gospels, and and he delves into theology with her. Um, so, so what we see in his treatment of women is 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 a, a, a an openness, um, a welcome to them, even if they're outsiders in every possible sense and the way that he treats them with theological seriousness. So, as I said, we have this this long conversation with the Samaritan where we also have, and possibly my favorite story in all of the Gospels, when Jesus um, raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11. But before that, has this incredible conversation with Lazarus's sister Martha, where he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies will live and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? It's one of his famous I am statements. And whereas almost all the others are spoken to groups, this is spoken to one individual grieving woman um, who he's, he's chosen to engage with and even created the space to engage with by letting her brother die. So we see Jesus, yeah, not, not only, as I say, kind of um, allowing women in, but drawing them to himself and treating them with, um, absolute sort of theological seriousness, um, in ways that would have been extremely surprising in the first century, and in some ways, dare I say, it, like can be surprising today.
0: Yeah. So about twenty years ago, when I was starting in my career after college, uh, that was really when the Gnostic Gospels started to to catch on. In particular there was a scholar right there at Harvard Karen King um, and a lot of the advocacy for the Gnostic Gospels had to do with really feminist interpretations they were thought to empower women in new ways I've always found that odd it seems that you find that odd as well but perhaps maybe explain why all of us would prefer the accounts of Jesus with women in the actual Gospels versus these so-called mm. Gnostic Gospels.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's funny, I was having a conversation just now in a coffee shop with a, an Irish guy who'd struck up a conversation with me and um, referred to himself as a Gnostic. And I was like, oh, I wonder what that means. So we sort of dug in and and he referenced the Gnostic Gospels as, as part of um, what he was saying. It, one of the things that it's important to kind of get clear in our minds is that whereas the four New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, were written well within the lifetimes of eyewitnesses of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and were written by people who were either themselves eyewitnesses, um, in the case of John's gospel, or very close associates with eyewitnesses. So, for example, Mark's gospel, the first to be written down, um, very likely mostly based on Peter's memories, and and each of the gospels drawing on named eyewitnesses as they write their accounts. Uh, it's one of the things that's fascinated me as I've explored this in the last few years, is that. And we don't often notice it. There are there are many anonymous people in the Gospels. For example, almost all the people Jesus healed in the Gospels are anonymous. But there are a f- few exceptions to that, and that's when the Gospel authors are specifically citing an eyewitness. So, for example, mm. Bartimaeus, who right. one of the blind men whom Jesus mm-hmm. gives his sight, cite, um, cited because he's someone who would have likely been known to the early Christian communities, and and you know someone who could be pointed to as a as a source for this. So, so we have the New Testament Gospels. Very close access to you know, actual eyewitness testimony of Jesus. The Gnostic Gospels is kind of a catch-all all term um, for for some other writings that were almost always actually significantly later, um, so beyond the the lifetimes of eyewitnesses to Jesus's ministry, um, and not actually giving us stories of Jesus during his life. So that the gospel, the four Gospels, give us essentially sort of biographies of Jesus with a strong focus often on, um, you know, the, the final phases of his, of his life, um, and especially his, uh, death and burial and resurrection, um, the Gnostic gospels sort of presuppose Jesus's life and tend to focus more on sort of hyper-spiritual conversations that Jesus is supposed to have had with his followers after his resurrection. Um, you know, an example of that is what's commonly known as the gospel of Mary, and that gospel, in particular, when I, when I say that gospel, I'm sort of using the term loosely, that that writing in particular is pointed to as a potentially a more um, female centric vision of Jesus than the New Testament Gospels give us. There are a couple of problems with that. Number one, as I, as I said, written after um, the first eyewitnesses uh, likely to have died out and not accessing that sort of living testimony of jesus so you know certainly far more speculative most of the text is actually missing um and it's a the a lot of what's missing is this supposedly sort of mystical um visionary conversation that jesus has with with this um this follower mary and the male disciples sort of mixed in their response to her some you know wanting to listen to her others and in particular peter saying why would jesus have revealed himself to a woman and not to us like that's crazy talk um why would he say something to a woman that he wasn't saying in our presence. The reality is if you look through the Gospels, you, you often see Jesus <laughs> um, revealing himself to women uh, when he could have re- revealed himself to his, his male disciples, not least um, in in the resurrection story when we see Jesus intentionally appearing to women first. And I say intentionally because John's Gospel is clear that um, Peter and the author of, of John's Gospel had both sort of run to the tomb having heard Mary Magdalene's first report so Jesus could have sort of sought them out, and instead he actually meets with, with Mary Magdalene and some of the other the other women. Um so, so these Gnostic Gospels give us a, a very different um picture of Jesus in the sense that their, their whole kind of worldview is not based in Jewish thought as revealed in the Hebrew scriptures, like the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, but much more in this sort of Gnostic philosophical tradition. Um that was circulating in, in the early centuries, you know, among um, Greek influenced thinkers. So, it, you know, much more about just uh, salvation as escaping from the body um, and from physical reality, versus the New Testament vision of um, the promise of resurrected life. You know, pr- properly embodied new life in Jesus. Um, so, so we have, you know, from a historical perspective, far less grounds for, for taking the Gnostic Gospels seriously than the New Testament Gospels. And uh, within the the New Testament Gospels themselves, we actually have all the material that we need um for a, a fully orbed um affirmation of of women as as disciples of Jesus, as um people whom Jesus specifically loved and loves today. Um, we have, whereas the the four New Testament Gospels for as we can tell, were written down by men. They're written on the basis of eyewitness testimony, often of others, and in particular recording women's voices. So the idea that the New Testament Gospels are sort of stifling um, a, a more feminist perspective on Jesus just doesn't align with what we see in the New Testament Gospels.
0: Well, for all these reasons and, and many others, it's not too small a thing to say that Jesus unleashed a revolution for women. Would you describe that revolution, though, as more sudden or as more of a slow burn over 2,000 years?
1: Gosh, um, I, I would say both. It, it's sudden in that the vision is all there in the scriptures. And this, is, this would actually be true with almost any kind of ethical line we want to trace um, from the New Testament to now. Um, the vision is all there. So it's not like well, the New Testament introduced some ideas, and then some really smart Christians later on kind of figured out some, you <laughs> right. know, how to improve on those ideas, and look here we are today. Exactly. Yeah, right, yeah. I, I don't really hold with that that sort of trajectories view. I think actually it's all there in the pages of the scriptures. I think uh, I, I don't just think I I know that um, the Christian vision of male and female both made in God's image, um, both beloved of Christ, both woven into Jesus's body, um, in in the sense of, of his body on earth today, which is which is the church, um, is and actually both you know in marriage playing um, profoundly important roles in, in picturing the gospel. Um, you know, as Paul gives us Christian marriage as a little almost scale model of Jesus's love for his church, where husbands are called to love and sacrifice for their wives as as Christ sacrificed for us on the cross. Um, I mean that that in and of itself is an extraordinarily radical idea in the first century when um, men were not even expected to be faithful to their wives, quite frankly, um, let alone to pull themselves out and sacrificial love for them. Um, it, it's radical if, we, um, if we've just imbibed a sort of Victorian or even, dare I say, it, sort of historic Christian cultural view of marriage, which is um, too often sort of the, the, the wife um, serving the husband, and the husband's needs and priorities kind of coming first and the wife you know following on in a in a subservient fashion that's actually not the vision that new testament gives us at all it's of husbands dying for their wives um and wives submitting to their husbands um as to the lord not because they are are not equal in in dignity and and worth um but because they're picturing the church um and and our, our submission to christ so we have you know all the resources in the new testament and and one of the profound ironies that I think we're seeing today and that we've seen in, in recent decades is, is that whereas you know, there are ways in which um, even sort of supposedly Christian cultures historically have kind of missed the mark in terms of what, what marriage ought to look like and, and how single ought to be valued, actually this is a piece of that as well. Um, today, even, even those among our, our peers who think that they are most in favor of women's rights and equality, are actually often um, buying into a, a system and a culture that is demonstrably bad for women. <laughs> so so our, our modern beliefs um, or the beliefs of our, our, our non-Christian friends in um, commitment-free sex as being a sort of general good, there's uh, mountains of psychological and sociological evidence to show that actually commitment-free sex is specifically bad. It's bad for everybody, let's be honest, but it's specifically bad for women. It's incredibly bad for children too, but like, if we you look at the... Um, you know the the negative effects of commitment free sex on women, um, and so so there are ways in which today, while we may think that we have created a sort of pro female um, system of equality, we've actually in many ways reverted to pre Christian paradigms where men um, could access commitment free sex in its least loving forms. Um, and women were just sort of expected to to go on with it. Um, you know, tragically, I think we've, uh, we've recreated some of that today.
0: Well, I was just speaking about uh, sexuality and transgender identities at a church last night. And the church that was giving away your secular creed book. And that was exactly one of the topics that I brought up there. And I suppose that's an answer to one of my questions or my next question here, which is, Let's imagine somebody might acknowledge that when you look back on human history, there's a turning point with Christ, but they reject his authority, obviously his claim to divinity, and they say, yeah, 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 I mean, sure, that's helpful. Now let's just ditch Jesus and Christianity and let's just keep these aspects of what we like within a feminist package and then go from there. What's the problem with that?
1: There's an extent that we can do that with any of our deepest moral beliefs. So we can say, I, I deeply believe in universal human equality. I deeply believe in care for the poor. I deeply believe that the strong and the rich and the powerful should not trample on the weak and the poor and the marginalized, but rather, rather care for them and share with them. I deeply believe in love across racial, racial difference. I deeply believe in the equality of men and women. You know, we can say all of those things, but if we take Jesus out of the foundations, and historically that's it's Jesus from whom all of those beliefs have flowed. Those were not self-evident truths at all in the first century. They haven't been self-evident truths um, in, in most cultures and most of time that haven't been in, in, in any way kind of attempting to follow Jesus' teaching. So we can say, you know, I just happen to believe this, and I can, yes, I can give it no real philosophical grounding in reality we can do that but that's ultimately boils down then to just sort of sort of preference equally somebody else could say well you know what I, I believe that this racial group is is more important than that racial group or i believe that men are in fact more important than women or i believe you know and and all that we can say to them at that point is okay you you do you you know we have <laughs> we no, that there's no plugging in of our deepest moral beliefs to the the fabric of the reality of the universe What Jesus offers us and what the scriptures give us is is a profound um, and intimate and and, um, indissoluble relationship between what we believe morally and what we believe about the universe itself. Um, There's a a fascinating book uh, called uh, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by an Israeli um, historian named Yul Noah Harari, and he identifies as, I think, agnostic or atheist. And he makes sort of um, searing statements like uh, homo sapiens has no natural rights just as chimpanzees, hyenas, and spiders have no natural rights. And he says human rights are a figment of our fertile, fertile imaginations and that there is, uh, it, it, human rights and equality have embarrassingly little in common with the scientific study of homo sapiens. So, so for our friends who, who may um, not want to believe in God at all or certainly not in a sort of fully full-orbed creator God, um, they're then left kind of clinging on the one hand to a supposedly sort of scientific view of the world that thinks that we can you know, analyze um, everything, know everything that's worth knowing kind of from the ground up scientifically. Um, they're grasping that with one hand, with the other hand, they're sort of snatching at um, Christian beliefs about the actual value and worth of human beings that have nothing to do <laughs> with this, this scientific study of Homo sapiens. So I, I think we find ourselves on you know, very fragile philosophical ground when we try to take um, Jesus's teachings about human beings in general and men and women in particular, and and sort of ground them on on nothing, <laughs> um, or on you know grasp at science, which is you know not going to not going to support that view at all.
0: You devolve into a meaningless tolerance. I would like you said, you do you. Or you dissolve, or do you devolve into power struggles, right. uh, just asserting your dominance of your view, even yeah. if it's a, a feminist view, just simply demanding conformity to it for the sake of conformity, yeah. um, a kind of right side of history approach yeah. perhaps, but nothing beyond that that you can refer to. Um, We've got a few more questions here with Rebecca McLaughlin talking about Jesus through the eyes of women, how the first female disciples help us know and love the Lord. As you're working on this book, Rebecca, any scholars, preachers, commentators you found who really grasped the significance of this aspect of Jesus's ministry?
1: Mm, Possibly my favorite um, scholar when it comes to the the Bible is a British guy named Richard Borkham um yeah. forgive my pro british no, <laughs> everybody, everybody loves
0: balkum balkum's um, great <laughs> well,
1: i don't know. i feel like most i feel like many people haven't heard of balkum well, which makes me sad
0: yeah i i mean his stuff can be pretty dense i'm reading through mm. jesus uh, um you know jesus to the eyewitnesses that was yeah,
1: yeah jesus and the
0: eyewitnesses yeah. it's it's some dense stuff it, it is. it's a lot it like is. reading nt Wright's apologetics it's it's long it's yeah. dense it's detailed yeah. very academic that might be why
1: yeah if I can in any small way be a sort of prophet of Richard Borkham, you know <laughs> speaking his words in, in more accessible ways um that would be a great aspiration for me yeah I, so I drew a lot on on him both in terms of uh, explaining why we should believe that the New Testament Gospels are in fact our most solid ground when it comes to just the historical reality of, of Jesus's um you know life and, and teaching and, and death and and claimed resurrection. Um, and also he, he wrote a fascinating book called Gospel Women.
0: Oh. Okay. Um,
1: where he's looking in particular at, at named women in the Gospels. Okay. And it's, you know, very scholarly and, you know, dare I say it, agree with you, rather dense um, tone. <laughs> um, but fascinating in terms of the the historical background that he can give to the, the named women in the Gospels. Um, for instance, when in Luke's Gospel, halfway three when Lucas is, is citing three named women among Jesus's itinerant disciples. Um he cites Mary Magdala, uh, from whom seven demons have been cast out, and who, you know, has gone on to become by far and away the most famous of Jesus's female disciples, um ar- arguably other than Jesus's mother Mary, who was obviously a disciple in one sense as well, but f- about whom the Gospels tell us very little. <laughs> in fact, other than that she had, Um, you know seven seven demons cast out from her and that she was um, the one of the first witnesses of the resurrection um Joanna the wife of Chusa Herod's household manager and a woman named Susanna and Richard Borkham has certainly a whole pages and pages on on what we can learn from this description Joanna the wife of Chusa Herod's household manager and what Richard Borkham explains is that this woman would have been part of herod's court and in this instance this is not king herod who ordered for um, all the baby boys in bethlehem to be killed but one of his sons who was ruling over the region that jesus was ministering in at the time um and had this sort of i was going to say love hate relationship with jesus it doesn't quite represent it but certainly um you know an an interest in jesus in some ways but ultimately a a, you know a a firm hostility towards him and the the reality is this this high status woman who was part of Herod's court had apparently left Herod's court to traipse around the countryside with Jesus and this um disreputable bunch of of disciple you know of of guys and women um and and quite what that signals about Jesus's attractive power um not only to the poor and it's very i mean the the theme especially in Luke's gospel of Jesus love and care for the poor is is unmistakable but Jesus it seems was able to draw poor women and rich women of high status like Joanna um, to to follow him um they were supporting his ministry out of their means so these are you know wealthy women but they weren't just doing that from a distance they were actually walking around the countryside with Jesus um, and go on to be some of the witnesses of the resurrection. It's extraordinary.
0: Hmm. Well, my next question, I think I have I I think I already have an answer to it, but uh, I was going to ask you, what one thing could our churches do right now that would reflect Jesus and how he treated women? One thing I was going to recommend, this isn't quite at the practical level at which I was seeking, but I was going to say preach through the Gospel of Luke. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've, I've found that it is very difficult challenging and mm-hmm. very rewarding, mm-hmm. um, and it will upend a lot of a, lot of a preacher's assumptions, yeah. I think. But uh, that's one thing you could do. That's a little bit hovering above where I was asking the question, but what comes to mind for you?
1: Mm. Uh, I want to say three things, which I know you only asked for one, <laughs> but I'm sorry. Sorry and, and also not sorry. Um, one is tr- treat women with theological seriousness. Uh, don't make your women's ministry about um, crafts and, um, you know, chats about motherhood, both of them are fine. Like there's nothing wrong with chats about motherhood and, and crafts. But actually, if we look at Jesus in the gospels, we see him having some of his most profound theological conversations with women. So um, expect to have, you know, if you're a pastor, expect to have some of your most profound theological conversations with women. Um, Number two there have always been more Christian women than men, as far as we can tell from historical records and as far as we can see in the global church today. And that's very likely true in your local church as well. Um, One of the implications of this is that there um, will always be more single Christian women than there are single Christian men. And this is actually in many ways really good news because single women um, can be incredibly powerful agents of the gospel. Um, when properly supported and integrated into the family of the church, but if we construct our churches along the idolatrous lines of only recognizing the nuclear family as you know what what family really is, and and um, I say idolatrous because I think idolatry of the nuclear family is you know a real problem that we have. Uh, instead of leaning into New Testament community ethics, which shows us that the local church is the primary family unit for Christians, then we're going to to leave single Christian women um you know alone and no, we're not designed to work alone um so that that's number 2 and now i'm forgetting what number 3 was but it, <laughs> oh yeah number 3 when we are talking and thinking uh, and debating about the role of women in the church we need to all remind ourselves of what jesus taught again and again in the gospels which is that leadership in his kingdom is not about power and privilege but about service and sacrifice and so often we come into these conversations whatever our views and whatever kind of outcomes we want the conversation to have we come in with the assumption that leadership is in fact about power and privilege and so you know for example denying women the opportunity to serve as a senior pastor is like um you know pushing them pushing them down into a subservient position well not according to jesus actually um according to jesus if you want to be great in the kingdom you need to be the servant of all um so and sometimes we will actually you know those of us who might take a a, you could call a complementarian view of uh, women's roles in the church um can fall prey to to the same problem of actually acting as if leadership is about power and privilege rather than about service and sacrifice so it will help all of us if we remind ourselves of this and it's a truth that jesus had to teach his disciples again and again and again and they didn't get it and nor do we today so i think we need to keep reminding ourselves actually the real gospel work the most important powerful gospel work in your church today is very likely being done by the least visible people um whether it's uh, and often those often those are women actually
0: Listeners to Gospel van are going to hear a, a live article pitch for me to Rebecca uh, there is a, there's I just saw a study that showed that for the first time or in some surprising way, the proportion of women to men mm. has come closer to equalizing mm. in the church in the United States. Now, there are many reasons why, as you rightly observe, that it's always been more women in the church. Mm-hmm. And that's like you mm-hmm. said, that's all of time, that's all the world. Yeah. Uh, that's not a uniquely American thing. But what seems to be a uniquely American thing right now is the radical um, widening gap between single women and married women on politics. Mm. And so in terms of – so a lot of single women are leaving the church for a lot of reasons connected to politics Mm -hmm. and inside the church. Um, I haven't thought much about that, but as you mentioned it, I thought, oh, Rebecca would have some really interesting thoughts
1: (laughs) about
0: about this and the significance of that. So. I'll yeah. send you something. <laughs> I'll
1: send okay, you I'll, I'll refrain from a response in, in real time. Well, wait, wait, until <laughs> no, no, see the stud,
0: wait and see the survey to make sure that I'm actually on the right track. But it made sense in terms of the Democratic Party's priority that they've placed for some time on single women, and then the shifts in the Republican Party um, mm. after that. And, um, and people often talk in politics about women. But it's not specific enough because there are significant differences between married and single women um, right. uh, when it comes to views on all kinds of different things. Abortion mm-hmm. would be one of those examples. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, and that could also be a function of the Dobbs decision as well, which has really upended um, some different political um, allegiances in the United States. Okay, so... that'll be be over email. Uh, All right, tell us about Confronting Jesus. Um, Love to hear about how that book differs from your other work. Mm. And uh, I was just thinking about this. I looked it up, Rebecca. It is amazing to me, (laughs) and what a blessing um, as your your friend and editor and uh, uh, over the years that your first book came out only a little bit more than three years ago. It's been a good run.
1: It's yeah, so it's funny, my my son Luke um is has just turned four and I wrote Confronting Christianity when I was pregnant with Luke. So all this craziness is like Luke Luke years old. Um, (laughs) yeah, I'm I'm going to receive my my personal copies of Confronting Jesus today. I just got a notification from UPS. Great. And it was timely because I just had a long conversation with an Irish guy in a coffee shop who sort of struck up a conversation with me while I was working on my new book. Um and you know, I was talking to him about Jesus because what else would anyone want to talk about? <laughs> he at various points asked me, he's like, have you always been like this? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I offered to, to send him a copy of Confronting Jesus. Um, and actually right after this, I'll go and see if he's still at the coffee shop, if, if my copies have arrived. Um, Confronting Jesus uh, is designed as a gateway drug to the Gospels. Um, what do I mean by that? I, I wrote Confronting Christianity my first book, um, especially for those friends of mine and, and maybe yours who have a lot of principled reasons for not even considering Christianity. Um, you know, isn't Christianity against diversity? Isn't Christianity homophobic? Um, doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Those kinds of things. So in that book, I sought to sort of address those questions and in doing so, um, bring in the scriptures in general and the gospels in particular. But the the front foot was the questions rather than the scriptures. Confronting Jesus is is sort of flipping that around and saying, okay, imagine you have a friend who is genuinely interested in Jesus, but maybe not quite ready to sit down and read a gospel for themselves. This is a book that I, I'm hoping will help whet their appetite for reading reading a gospel. Um, and and the best way I can explain it is, it, my twelve-year-old Miranda is is really into the musical Hamilton at the moment, and um, a few weeks ago Good she taste. read the yeah she read the biography it's like 800 pages or something crazy the biography that on which on which the musical was sort of based yeah. and she kept coming to me and saying um Mum, hamilton in real life is so much less he's so much worse than hamilton in in the musical she was like you know here let me tell you about all the bad things that hamilton did and all you know the skeletons in his closet um i think when we read the gospels we have the opposite experience so i have a sort of hazy view of hamilton from having watched the musical but not having read the 800 page biography um and he strikes me as kind of a great guy with you know for sure some bad patches like when he committed adultery and that you know definitely not good um but she has a much a much clearer view of the, of the real man i think when we read the gospels we go from a hazy view of jesus as like yeah you know good moral teacher but who knows if he ever really claimed to be you know various things to being absolutely uh stunned by who Jesus is. and so that was that's what I would love for people to experience as they read confronting Jesus sort of being confronted by Jesus in the gospels and if if halfway through people put the book down and pick up a gospel and read it instead I will be only delighted.
0: <laughs> well, what could be better Rebecca than talking with you about Jesus. That is fun. That is some fun stuff. I love being able to read through your works and and be able to interact with you about them and to and to think about the the revolution that Jesus affected and that he mm. continues to mm. affect and that we continue to live into as we're confronted by Jesus mm. as we read him. One of the main things I said last night was if we are not offended by Jesus, yeah. then we are not reading him we're not
1: paying attention we are okay. not paying attention
0: he yeah. has he says plenty of hard things mm-hmm. for all of us to be offended by in our flesh and yet of course sends us his comforter the holy mm-hmm. spirit to help guide us into all that tr- all truth into hearing it and obeying it and um it's amazing and he loves us loves us all the way he knows how we fall short and at the same time loves us to to holiness mm. and ultimately is coming again soon so um, my guest on gospel bound has been Re- Rebecca McLaughlin we've been talking primarily about Jesus through the eyes of women how the first female disciples help us know and love the Lord new from the gospel coalition we also there touched on her latest confronting Jesus nine encounters with the hero of the gospels published by crossway with the gospel coalition Rebecca it's always a joy thanks for joining me thanks Colin Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.